Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. This episode of the podcast is about Native American boarding schools and specifically the experiences of nine sisters at Native American boarding school in Marty, South Dakota in the 1960s and 70s and the abuses and traumas that they allege they sustained there. I talk with Michelle Eccles in this podcast, who is a woman I have known for now for three years and have been working with on this story in one form or another for the past three years. She is the lawyer of the nine sisters, the nine Charbonneau sisters, um, and she is also their cousin. By way of introduction, just to give you a sense of what we're talking about in that essay and also to prepare you for the conversation that I have with Michelle, I'm just going to read a short excerpt from my essay, which is now available on the website, um, on the Now Showing section. And of course, for for subscribers, it is available along with all other content and all other issues of liberties um, through digital subscriptions. So what I'm about to read to you is just a, one small part of the stories that the sisters tell about their time at Marty. Just to forewarn you, um, this is pretty gruesome. It is it is hard to hear. So if you are at all susceptible to nightmares, brace yourselves. On the first Monday of every school year, all of us would undergo the same initiation ritual. Straight off the bus, we'd be organized into one long line and then stripped naked. Once we reached the front of the line, nuns would pour DDT powder, a poisonous insecticide, over our heads and bare bodies for delousing. We were told this was because we were dirty Indians and had to be debugged. If we tried to wash the powder off, we'd be forced back in line and the process would simply be repeated. Every single year, the first Friday evening at the end of that first week, the entire school would assemble and they would screen films of Jews in concentration camps lined up towards the gas chambers. The next morning, all of us would be led into group showers where we would finally be permitted to wash off that powder. After washing, each child would stand naked in front of the nuns waiting for us just outside the bathroom in order to inspect our bodies. They would bend us over and touch us before finally permitting us to collect our clothes and redress. From that very first week, that fear of being put into the gas chamber was instilled and remained throughout our time at St. Paul's. There were all kinds of horrors awaiting us after that initial trial. Some of us suffered permanent frostbite, some still bear physical scars from the beatings administered by the nuns and priests. Some of us were beaten so badly we had to be hospitalized for up to 10 days. Some of us were sodomized, some have scars from births and abortions from being raped by our caretakers. Once on an outing to a lake, one of the boys went into the water and started to drown and we were all screaming, asking them to help him, but the priests and nuns just ignored us and he died. No one took care of us. We had no mother or father figures. There were no toys. We made friends quickly. We had to. Friendship was a form of protection. We always had our cliques. We had to have our cliques to look out for one another or we would have been severely beaten on a daily basis. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This has been, um, this is like, I think it's over three years now that you and I have been having conversations exactly like the one that we're about to have now. So it really is such an honor for me to finally have the opportunity to um, give your story a platform and give the Nine Sisters a platform. So thank you, thank you, thank you for working with me um, and thank you for being here now. Thanks so much, Celeste. This is, I'm really glad that you've taken this on and um, and really stuck with it all this way through all of our conversations and the writing of the article and everything. So thank you. It's it's it has been an honor and an education. Um, so I, before you and I started this conversation, I I read part of the testimony from the sisters' account that is in the essay in um, issue four of Liberties, but. I just want to do just a very, very broadly, if you could talk about the story a little bit um, and talk about how stories like this are prevalent throughout the Native American community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, this specific story is unique because we're talking about one family that had nine sisters that were all sent to this Native American boarding school. Um, 
So it's unique in that sense, but it's not unique in that the story of boarding schools is prevalent in probably every Native American's life um, and has had impact on their life today. Um, Since for myself, even my great grandfather was sent to boarding school in Indiana um, from North Dakota and uh, during the late 1800s. And he was um, even went to like, I think it was the St. Louis fair or something where he was put on display for how a native American person could be assimilated um, and made productive, if you will. And so um, that happened with my great, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my father, um, and even to some extent, my brother, he was sent to, to boarding school for a little bit as well, um, but not a, not a Native American boarding school, so just to be clear. Um, so boarding school has impacted my life, but my story is not unique as well, that this has happened um, to every, I would venture to guess, every Native American in, um, in their families. So when you say this has happened, I just want to clarify um, this, the trauma that the sisters sustained, this, the, the rape and torture and emotional manipulation that they, um, t- that they testify happened at those schools. Um, are you saying that every Native American has a story similar to that kind of trauma? Or are you saying that every Native American knows somebody who went to the boarding schools? Maybe they experienced something um, traumatic, although not necessarily in the same family as that sort of trauma. Like how how bad was it generally? Because as as you and I will discuss later, um, some some Native Americans when they hear stories about the about the boarding schools will say, "But I had a great experience there." Um, or my mother did, or something like that. It's definitely the latter that I'm saying that. Um, Native American families have been impacted by boarding schools historically, I believe, uh, across the board. But not everybody has had the same experience at those boarding schools. I had, um, when my father was working at the boarding school there at uh, St. Paul's Indian Mission in South Dakota, uh, I was a, you know, I was born there and I spent my early years there um, on the campus of the boarding school and I had a great time. I, I remember my years there very fondly. Uh, I wasn't living in the dormitories or anything like that, but I was attending classes, you know, as a young child. Um, So my experience even there was positive. So I'm sure there's other, many other people and I've heard other people saying that they had positive experiences there. So I'm not definitely not saying that this happened across the board, but I'm also not uh, turning away or uh, not listening to people who are saying that it happened to them because it did, it did happen to them and it happened to many people. And I've had lots of survivors come out and contact me since I've been working on this project and share with me terrible stories, horrific stories of what happened to them at boarding school. At, at Marty as well, right? At Marty and other places as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how you became conscious of this story in particular, and um, if it's if it's relevant, if you could also talk about when you when you started hearing about traumatic experiences at the boarding schools um, sustained by other former students, not necessarily your cousins, the sisters. Just talking about the last thing first is that. Um, we always, you would hear conversations kind of in hushed tones kind of thing. So I don't even recall the first time I knowing that bad things happened at the boarding schools, um, because there was some discussion of it, you know, at family gatherings and things like that. Um, but I didn't know the extent to it until I started working on this project, I think. Um, and the way that I was introduced to the sisters and their story um, is that my father is, um, we're from the Turtle Mountain uh, Reservation, we're Anishinaabe, Ojibwe people. 
And um, my father was the executive director there at St. Paul's Indian Mission in the early 70s. And uh, he was assisted in transfer of control of the school from the church to the tribe. And, um, and many people from our reservation in North Dakota were sent down to St. Paul's uh, for whatever reason. Um, and my father has, um, you know, his aunt, um, and she, and where my father's father's family is from, is from the Pembina region of North Dakota. And it, so it was off the reservation. It wasn't in the Turtle Mountains. And, um, so the nine sisters are my dad's first cousin and they grew up in that area of North Dakota, like in the Pembina area. And there was no school for them to attend. There was no um, local school, even though the Turtle Mountains had a school. It's it's several hours away from the Turtle Mountains. So I think that's why they were um, sent down to South Dakota and Marty to um, attend St. Paul's. They were never told where they were sent there? When I talk to them about that, they say that they, um, yeah, they don't talk about why they went to St. Paul's in particular. It To me, it was just kind of common knowledge that Native people were sent to, to Marty to go to school. And I just assumed it was like all Native people, but um, <laughs> in that time frame. But, um, but now as, as I learned more, you know, there, there were like a day, there was a day school in the Turtle Mountains. So uh, several people, you know, a lot of people in the Turtle Mountains probably didn't go to Marty, but I do know that several of them did. So I don't know why or, or how or what the reasoning was behind that. But, but it, Marty to, to the Pembina region where uh, the Ninth Sisters grew up, I don't know, like 400, 500 miles away. So I don't even know why that was selected or how that happened. Okay. And so that that's how they ended up there. They're not really sure how they did, but it wasn't exactly anomalous uh, for people from, they're from Olga, North Dakota, right? That's, that's the region you're describing, like outside of not, not exactly near the Turtle Mountains, although it is, um, there are members of the Turtle Mountain tribe who, who live there. Okay. So they ended up at Marty um, and your father, your grandfather, I'm sorry, in like, was it 75 was the year that it transitioned from church control to native control? Right. That's I, that's what, what I think the year was right around that time, at least. Okay. And so, okay. And that up at that point, your family left Marty. So now there's a time there, there must be like a time jump because many years later you found out about the sister's experience right. there. They, yeah, that was I want to say that they approached me around 2000, between 2014 and 2016. So after they've already decided to join the class action suit, they approached you after? after yeah, that. it was much after that. I didn't even know that that was happening when it was happening. Okay. And they told you their story and asked you for, I guess, legal representation? They asked me if I could help out in any way with their case and with, you know, how things kind of happened in from 2010 when the, the state statute was changed, which basically blocked them from co- going to court. So they're trying to figure out a solution to be able to have their case be heard. And so I was um, helping them work on that and think that through and think about what options there were maybe with the legislature and changing the statute in order to help them with that so that their story could be told and heard in court. Okay. So let's, let's just tell the story so that people who aren't familiar with it and who have not yet read the essay, um, understand what we're talking about here. The sisters, the sisters had alleged that they were raped and tortured at Marty. Um, different ones had different experiences that, like many childhood victim childhood victims of sexual assaults, um, they had repressed memories of these traumas, and that a later trauma, in this case, it, I think it was their mother's death, um, provided an opportunity to resurface those memories. 
Um, and so decades and decades after all of them left, Marty was the first time that they spoke to anybody about what happened to them there, what they alleged happened there. Um, and that was when they first told each other about what happened. And they had, they had been approached by other survivors, uh, who were, who were part of a class action suit against Marty, um, in, I think it was 2006. I thought it was around 2005 or so, but somewhere in that neighborhood. Okay. Um, and they, they did in fact join the class action suit. Um, it was, there were, I think almost, it must've been 18 other, um, members of the suit. Uh, the class action suit was supposed to go to court. I think it was like days away from going to court. Um, they'd been through discovery already and the South Dakota legislature like at lightning speed got a statute of limitations put through the court um, that changed the statute of limitations for child sexual assault in such a way that none of the um, class action suits could 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 be brought to court and the judge retroactively applied the new statute of limitations and threw all the cases out so um, that's when the sisters came to you and said can you help us with this well, actually, after that, what happened was that the case went up to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court said, no, you can't apply this statute retroactively. But because at the time that this happened, it was basically personal injury. And uh, if you're suing an organization like the church, you have to use this other statute of limitations, which is basically under the personal injury statute of limitations. You can't sue under the child sexual abuse statute of limitations and that made it the personal injury statute of limitations is like two years so they then the judge said well you should have filed suit then two years after you turned 18 which would have been in the 1970s sometime um so of course that that just blocked them from court as well and they their suit got knocked out at that point and the reason that most states do have a statute of limitations on childhood sexual assault, what, what they'll do is they'll put the, the time limit is on when it's reasonable to expect that the memories will have resurfaced because suppression of the memories is so common. Um, that's what most states have. So the idea that they would, they would use that they would apply um, a statute of limitations for personal injury on cases of childhood sexual assault uh, just like just for context for um, listeners who aren't aware, that's that's pretty s- strange, right? Even South Dakota now it has a so- uh, sexual child sexual abuse statute of limitations that is three years uh, from the time of the incident, or three years from the time that you realize that the abuse had occurred. So that that but the what makes this different is that if you want to sue the organization that helped facilitate the abuse, you can't do it unless you, you're under this other personal injury statute of limitations. And the other option would be what, to sue the person who actually committed it? Like rather than the organization, it would have to have to be the perpetrator? Right. And by the time, and the, the studies have shown that by the time that all of these memories are really coming into full realization, the person is usually around the age of 52. So by that time, usually the abuser has either passed away or is, is uh, not around. Um, and so it leaves these survivors just without any sort of recourse. So you have been working with the sisters um, for the better part of a decade how has that been? What what challenges have been thrown at you that you weren't expecting? Mm. Well, there's so many things that I was thinking of that are things that really surprised me about this whole subject. Um, and first, firstly, um, I think being attacked, um, not physically, I'm saying, but the be, just being under attack by the legislators and the the negative response that we get when we bring forth our legislation. And our legislation has been to change the statute of limitations to allow survivors to be able to pursue organizations that help facilitate and, and actually promote the abuse 
from the activities um, that they've been doing or the way that their policies, internal policies and things like that. So um, it's been really eye-opening and disheartening to see the amount of uh, just negative talk about us, the, the, one of the legislators um, who is the chairman of the committee that we have to go through in order to get the legislation heard um, the past few years, he's really gotten in these arguments with some of the survivors, one of the sisters in particular, um, right in the chambers of the committee um, where they're bantering. Like he just engages in this negative banter and, and says offensive things um, that the sisters feel like they need to respond to. Um, so I, I've been been really surprised about the just negative reception that we've received. And also what happens every year is that we learn that the legislators um, are talking behind the scenes to one another and really um, misrepresenting what we're uh, what we're saying. So they'll say, well, you guys are just trying to bring down the Catholic Church or you guys are, are against the church. Um, and then one year they started saying to other people that we were against pro-life because of, of the legislation we were bringing. And I, I still don't see that connection at all. Um, and those certainly aren't our goals. Um, but they, they've been characterizing us in this negative way. Is it bipartisan um, in, in, in terms of the criticism that you're undergoing? Because I, I think I remember you telling me that it was a Democrat who accused you of being pro um, well, it's hard in South Dakota, you have, <laughs> I think, maybe six members of their legislature that are Democrat. Um, but yeah, both Democrat and Republican have come out and, against us. So, And Republicans have championed you, isn't, isn't that right? That has happened, too, in the past with um, Stacey Nelson. He was an advocate for us because he could not fathom the type of abuse that happened without um, speaking out against it. And he was, has been an, an advocate, um, for domestic abuse survivors, um, and that kind of thing as well. So this was, uh, consistent with some of his past, um, actions and with the legislature. Um, but unfortunately, no, he's no longer with the legislature. And so we lost, um, one of our champions when he went away. Also, I think people were, uh, able the other legislators were were able to characterize his activities as being kind of wild and out there as well, and so um, I think that he had that a little bit of that reputation too, just because he had the courage to stand up and say things that are right and true. And all you're asking, I mean, it, it, it's not as if um, you've even asked for you know some huge chunk of money from the church. I remember that. I, I was listening to the testimony on the South Dakota State Legislature website, and every year they have this guy come and accuse you of suing the church so that you can get money from the church, as if as if like you're profiteering off of this, um, off of your own attempts to, you know, to get to, court, to get the court to change the statute of limitations, and they and they believe that is that does it, is that is it taken seriously it is and it's unusual the way how much it is taken seriously because the first thing that you'll hear opponents say is that they have there's a bunch of california attorneys that want to just swoop in and force a bunch of class action suits through the courts and they'll just make off with all this money and bankrupt the church um and and somehow that reasoning has stuck <laughs> with, with the legislators and that it seems more rational to people than the claims of people who have been abused uh, and child sexual abuse survivors. Do they not believe the claims? I mean, I've actually never heard the thing. One of the things that really shocked me when I first started learning about all of this, when I first started listening to those testimonies on the website is that it didn't seem to me that anybody didn't believe what the sisters were saying. They believed that they were raped. They believed that they had these clandestine abortions in the basement and were forced to, you know, put the 
put the fetuses in the incinerators. It's not that they thought that they were lying. It was that like, for some reason it didn't matter to them. Yeah, that's been another surprise to me that that you know the, the they haven't come out and say that they disbelieve what what the sisters are saying. Um, but they have these other reasons that seem to be better that um, that these these mysterious lawyers will come out of the woodwork and um, and get everybody to sue the church. So I don't know. Yeah, there was one woman in 2018. I think it was the testimony from 2018, where um, in, in which the lawyer for the opposing side, I think Stephen, I think it was Stephen Smith, who was also the lawyer who got the statute of limitations put through. Um, he said something like, you know, my heart breaks for survivors of sexual assault, but bankrupting the church is not going to help them. And I just thought, like in one breath, the callousness, because I think it was Jerry had just given testimony. She had just stood in front of these people and given testimony that they believed it. He wasn't even saying he didn't believe it. Um, and they wouldn't, they would, they just wouldn't let them have it. And the other thing that I think is strange, I mean, I understand that, you know, they're going to fight their fight. They feel like their responsibility is to defend the church, but because they can't get the case, the case can't advance to court. All the documents that were unveiled during discovery or unearthed during discovery can never be made public and so the story is, is keeps getting suppressed. Um, and that, I guess, I think that's what bothers the sisters the most is that people, that they can't be heard, that their stories really can't be told adequately. Um, and, and just subsequent to that, I think that, that pe- some people don't believe them. I guess is just under there as well. So those two things, I think those are the things that really just eat at the sisters. Who are the people that don't believe them? In terms of the, we were just talking about the legislature and, and what you were saying, how, um, you know, even if it was true, you don't, you don't want to harm the church type of thing. Um, I think there's still some people that have to be just have to disbelieve them because how else could they be so adamant against us if you knew that you're, these are child sexual abuse survivors and the way that you're treating them, how could you do that unless you didn't believe them? That's my only reconciling that I can do of, of what we've experienced. But you can't say that about the Native Americans who have pushed back on you. They do not. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother area that has surprised me as well. But I have reasons for that, at least where um, so other uh, Native people have um, spoken out against us. I had one person who did an editorial opinion in the newspaper in South Dakota about how we were just after money and that we weren't here to to try to help anybody. Um, And you have other people who just flat out don't believe those things happen in boarding school. Their experience was great and wonderful. And so they think that it didn't happen. Um, I think recently we've seen in Canada, at least where there's, they've been discovering all of the bodies of these children that died in the, in boarding school. And I think so some of these things I hope are, hitting home and resonating with people where the stories that native survivors are telling are true, um, that, that these things did happen there, um, that they, you know, in the past I had, um, posted information about Dennis Seeley. He was essentially sold for labor, uh, when he was six years old from a boarding school. And, um, his, you know, people are, are in disbelief about these types of things happening, but they did happen. Um, and it's, I think it feels harder for me really to know that there's native people who are speaking out against us. Um, because they, I would, I feel like they should understand, you know, that our history, they know what happened, but What's interesting is there's um, there's a famous quote, and I can't think of it now, but 
um, it's on the Native American uh, Boarding School Healing Coalition website about how these are things that your grandmothers just cannot even bear to speak about yet. So you, you have that where people don't even want to talk about it, don't want to address it, don't want to think about it. They want to move forward. It's too hard to think about. Um, and so that's another reason why they're not, nobody, like, it doesn't get um, broadly addressed, I think, in our community because of that. A lot of people do not want to dredge up those, uh, that trauma that happened. Um, and then you have the next generation that comes along and doesn't really know what happened, you know, post the 70s. There's some, there's some boarding schools that are still in operation today, but largely they were transferred to tribal control um, back in the 70s. So you do have this generation now that only hears bits and pieces of what happened. And so um, they may not fully understand all the, the, the horrific details of what did happen um, in boarding school. Did you talk to your father about the sister story? Yeah, I do talk to my parents about it. Of course, with my father, it's, I feel like it's must be so heart wrenching for him because to, to know that something like that happened. And we know that he know, didn't know at the time that it, we were there. Um, so the thought of this hor- these horrific things, also the things that happened to the sisters predated a lot of them, a lot of that time before he became, you know, went to work there. So it wasn't occurring. All of it wasn't occurring while he was there. Um, so it's it, for him, I think it's really hard. And I try to be careful of how much I say um, because I don't want to hurt him. Yeah. But it, that's, that's another example. I mean, that's a, that's a personal example of how hard it is to talk about these things because one of the things that I noticed while doing this research is just how enmeshed Native American culture is with the very people and the very organizations that so often uh, mistreated them. Um, um, you know, caring, caring very deeply for the person who's abusing you or caring very deeply for the person who's abusing your family without even knowing it. Like you gave, you told me, I remember where I was standing when you told me that it was, a, it was a family friend who had abused whom your sisters allege had abused them. Um, who, who can you tell, can you tell us that story? Yeah. So as I was learning more and more about the details of what happened with the sisters, um, they were talking about, and I, and I would listen to some of the interviews they gave to the press as well. And they were talking about how the priests would use my, okay. So I have to back up for a second and t- say, so the, um, my grandfather and, uh, his family also went to Marty at St. Paul's Indian mission. And, um, and so there's a long history of my family being there at the boarding school. And my grandfather was working as the shop manager at the, the shop where they took care of the, the buses and the equipment and the facilities and that kind of thing. And so, um, he had been living there for many years, uh, with my grandmother and a lot of people would, uh, a lot, some of the children kind of remember them fondly because they were the Turtle Mountain children. They were a connection to home for some of them. Uh, and so that was like the only connection they had. And so they really thought, remembered fondly um, that they're about their presence. When I was there, I don't remember them, the students ever being able to come and visit though. So it was interesting when the sisters told the story about how the priest would use my grandparents as like a lure to get them alone and to be able to do the things that they wanted to, to have access to the children. So they would say, you know, you can go see your aunt and uncle if you come with me. And they would use my grandparents in that way 
that just crushed my soul when I heard that. That was just something that was like heartbreaking. And they, so the sisters would also describe how um, some of my grandfather, well, one of my grandfather's friends in particular, he was the man with the keys that would jingle around in the night that they would hear that because he was a facilities person that had access to all the, the keys to all the dormitories. And um, so he would jingle those keys around and they, the sisters would hear that in the night uh, knowing then that somebody had access to them um, while they were sleeping and which relates to Louise's story about coming back from the bathroom in the night and finding a man in her bed um, and being just terrified. It's because the, the people had access to them and they're in the dormitories in the night. And um, anyway, the, the man with the keys was my father's or my grandfather's friend. And he would, I remember him coming over to visit often and he was um, deaf and he was also mute and so he, but my memory was that he was just so funny and he would have to act out whatever he was telling my grandfather because he couldn't speak. And so um, that's, it was just heart-wrenching again to hear the, the how close the people were to me that were involved with the abuse. Do you feel like those kinds of connections are part of the reason why it's so difficult to tell these stories? Definitely. Because, well, going back to when the sisters started talking about the abuse only after their mother's passing amongst, you know, talking amongst each other about it and trying to corroborate some of the things that they had, that these memories that they have had lifelong and, and, um, you know, going back to that, like how they were, they, I think it's like, when you're remembering back to something that happened, but you were a child at the time that it happened and you just thought that's how the world was. But then you, as you get older, you realize, no, that was wrong. Like why this shouldn't have happened. This person shouldn't have told me that this person shouldn't have done this or that you're seeing it now with an adult lens. And so I think that to me is how I kind of understand how, you know, just a little bit of how, um, kind of repressed memories happen because you're, you're starting to reprocess some of those memories with your new experience as an adult. And you're, and you're realizing like how much was wrong and what happened to you. I want to have the opportunity to tell some of the stories that I didn't get to tell in the essay. Cause it was, there was just too much and it would have been too much explaining. Um, but there was this instance uh, you told me about the, the sisters described in one of the, in one of the interviews that they gave that there were, there would sometimes be bodies in the playground in the playroom. Um, yeah. And I remember you and I were both confused about that. It was in an earlier version of the essay, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was. And so um, I took it out. However, you did tell me two stories about um, children di dying or one, I think one did die for sure. And one may have, um, and they're, they're just illustrative of a kind of broader neglect and, and cruelty. So could you recount those stories now? Yeah. So the story that I was told about, uh, one of the children that died while the sisters were attending the school was, um, Jerry has a story about, a kind of an outing that they took to a local lake as a group, um, and there was the priest there and um, I think some of the nuns. And so they were all swimming and eating and, and, um, and you know, having a good time. They were having an, trying to have an outing. But during that outing, one of the boys started to drown in the water. And all the children were screaming to help, you know, get help for this, this child who was drowning. And, but, the no one would go into the water to help them. And, um, and in their, in their mind, it was because like the priest wouldn't go in to help because he was the one who was abusive. They called him meatball and he would not wear any clothing under his, according to them that he would not wear any clothing under his rope, his robes. 
um, so that he would have like easy access uh, when he would pull, like he'd have children sit on his lap all the time. And that was part of the molestation that took place. But they, they thought that he didn't go into the water to rescue this boy because he didn't, couldn't take off his robe and he would have had to wade into the water with these big robes on. Um, so, but in any event, the boy uh, died and drowned and they weren't able to help him. And um, so they said that when a child died at the school, that they would um, put them in like a state of repose in, but the, they would use the little girl's playroom as the room that they would do that in. And they would make the children go in and say prayers and say the rosary and that kind of thing. And I was surmising that maybe it was their attempt to, to combine cultures a little bit where, um, or it was just them, this is the way that they were doing kind of a, the, you know, the Catholic type of burial where they had the person um, in repose, like during a wake and, um, and they would say rosary and that kind of thing. But they, they kept him there in the little girl's playroom dead as, and, and had the children come in and say prayers to him or not to him, but, you know, prayers around him or whatever. So they must, somebody must have gone in and gotten him out of the water after he was already dead. They must have. That's the only, I only have, they didn't describe, you know, detail, the detail of what happened. And definitely as a memory that they would never forget finding a, a, a child's body in the playroom. Okay. So, and the other time was um, that they told me about was when there was a, maybe a, like a five-year-old boy and he was in that shop that I was talking about where my grandfather worked. And I'm not sure why or what happened specifically, but a piece of equipment, maybe an engine or something fell on top of him. He, maybe he had just, you know, touched it or something like that. But anyway, it fell on top of him and, and crushed his, his head. And, um, and so he was another child that they recall, um, dying while they were there. And again, they have this, like having them lay in repose or whatever as well. Um, and so that those yeah types of horrifying memories of those deaths and then having them on display and um, that kind of thing in the little girl's playroom it was really traumatizing for them. So now that, you know, these stories are, are long over, obviously they still, they have left very deep scars on your cousins and um, people like them who grew up in those schools. But what are, what would you say are the lasting traumas or implications of these episodes in native american history well if you think about it logically and that's what i try to do is um the you have this history that started roughly in the 1800s of sending off native children to school without their families nearby without their systems of support and the idea was to assimilate and they thought that this would be a successful way if we can't kill them directly we'll just either uh, we'll try to to assimilate them into mainstream culture. And so you have this history of students being sent away, not having family support, not having anybody there to advocate them with, for them. You have numerous accounts of the neglect that happened, of physical abuse that happened, sexual abuse that happened. And so this happened for generations, like my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my father. It happened for multiple generations. And you think about that, it, like that means that these children grew up without the normal parenting that you would have, um, that you would get modeled from your own parents. You didn't have any of that. You didn't have any sort of love and support. The nuns were, were not there to, you know, console you and and kiss your boo-boos type of thing. You didn't have that. You didn't have, so I think that uh, when the sisters talk, that's one thing that was stood out to me and was surprising to me is that how it impacted later generations that didn't even go to boarding school because their parents had gone and their parents had lifelong issues because of, they didn't have the modeling of their parents or their family structure, or their community nearby to help them. Um, and then they also, you have that element of like, they weren't protected by abusers. 
they weren't protected from abuse. They weren't. Uh, and so I can just imagine what that does to your psyche that you're stuck at this school. And my, the sisters say that, you know, at least we could go home at, in the summer. We could, but there were so many students who never went home and imagine that they were just stuck there all year round and they didn't know anything different than that abuse and neglect and that kind of thing. So you have generations of people who have suffered that. And I think a lot of the abuse has carried forward into the future generation or not future, but the next generations down. And so there's so many different issues that we struggle with as a community because of this generational trauma that occurred, this trauma upon trauma over generation. And now we have so many um, issues that are really attributable to this history with boarding schools. What comes next in, for you and for the, for the sisters? I know that you've had family um, hardships over the past year, year that probably changes the course of this battle. Um, do you want to talk about them a little bit and talk about what, what comes up? Yeah, so I think what's played out these last couple of years is just what we we could see happening with survivors of this abuse. The, the survivors ha- tend to have more medical problems that I think are directly re- correlate to the abuse that they suffered. And so you can see um, with the sisters that they seem to be, it's almost like this, um, it was an eating at them kind of thing. Like the trauma that they had had was really impacting their health and um, just impacting them in a major way, I guess I could say. So um, one of the strong champions of the nine sisters, um, Louise, um, she was one of the younger sisters and she passed away just as she was getting ready to come to the legislative session, she was having her husband go pick out an outfit for her to wear to the committee hearing that we were scheduled to go to. And when he came back into the room, she was, she was gone. And um, that just devastated the sisters as well. Uh, And plus before that they have brothers um, and other siblings that had passed on like two brothers that had passed away in the that same year before Louise passed away. Then this year, just after we had the legislative session, we had um, Barbara Kay, Dr. Barbara Kay Dolan. Um, she passed away uh, and she had so many different uh, health issues she had been struggling with because of the trauma that she endured. And, um, and so it's been just death after death after death in the family. It's been terrible. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly where we'll go from here. I know that we, the um, sisters still would like to continue to, um, fight and, get their stories heard more broadly and in the hopes that it's going to help someone in the future, someone stop someone from suffering from child sexual abuse to end that um, cycle of abuse, to bring more education about the history of boarding schools for native Americans and the history of uh, abuse. So, um, we are continuing to, to work on our on different efforts in order to bring more awareness. And so we are continue down that vein. And I always just really, um, when we do regular planning with them to see where we're at. And since Barbara Kay's death, I did just wanted to leave, you know, leave it up to them about where, what they felt comfortable doing um, and how much they wanted to work on things. So, so we've been taking it step by step now. I, I noticed over the past, I mean, there were so many questions that doing this doing this work and engaging in this process with you has raised for me. One of them was just realizing um, the incredible burden that it places on, the, on a victim to have to tell their own story over and over again. That's really what I feel like was eating away at their health over these times. Like of the nine sisters, like 
I think two have cancer. I talked about Louise, about Barbara Kay. Um, so I think that's something that gets swept under the rug or under under talked about is the uh, the the implications on that survivor, like how it, it, it affects them mentally and physically. Yeah. And I definitely tried very hard not to, not to force them to retell their stories um, more than I needed to, because it was just, it, it just was felt gratuitously cruel to make them do that. Uh, but I am so grateful that I have been able to share their story more broadly and I'm so grateful to you for trusting me with it and for talking to me about it here. I know that you and I will do, will continue to do um, this work together, but I just want to thank you again and um, invite anybody who's listening to, to go to the website, go to the Liberty's website. The article is, is up there now. Please share it because people need to know about this episode in American history and this story is just one of many, many stories, some of which will never be told. So um, thank you for the opportunity to be able to do this. And I'm so proud of you, Celeste, for taking this topic on and really doing something wonderful with it. Uh, this whole topic is just so mentally and exhausting and, and can really impact your mental well-being. And so it really takes somebody strong to be able to, to take, take it on like you have. So I appreciate that. I really learned from you. So thank you for your example. Thank you so much, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to read the essay, again, it's available on our website in the Now Showing section. And if you'd like to learn more about the Nine Little Girls organization, which Michelle founded when she started this project, head over to ninelittlegirls.com. And if you have any questions about the story for me or for Michelle, email me at celeste.libertiesjournal.com. And um, she and I would, would love to answer any questions that we can about this. Thank you.